Why are you a Christian? And one of the, one of the most interesting answers I, I've heard to that uh, question uh, is by, by author Philip Yancey simply says a little bit sarcastically, well, just lack of better options, right? I mean, I, I kind of I resonate with that a little bit, but, but seriously, why, why are you a Christian? And that's a, that's a real question. I'd love to jot up some, you know, brief answers. Maybe not your whole, like, story. Um, but why? Why are you a Christian, if that describes you? Because it's, it's true, okay. Truth, okay. What else? Hope, okay. Grace, okay. Thank you. Anybody else? brave here. Born into, okay, so yeah, sure, it's a, a tradition maybe, right? You don't know any other way. That's okay. What else? Anything? Resurrection, yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll just put, you know, Jesus in general, right? Yeah. Somebody else over here? Life, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is that the, the reasons that we could put up on this board are in some ways endless, right? There are, there are all kinds of things for many of us that have drawn us to this historical person named Jesus, right? That have sort of brought us in. Reasons that you have chosen him. But look at it from a different angle. Why did he choose you? I mean, I know there's a lot that we could debate about that, right? What does it mean for God to choose us and us to choose him and free will and, you know, yada, 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 uh, all that, right? It's mysterious, isn't it? That, that somehow the Bible teaches that God mysteriously chooses us and we sort of somehow mysteriously choose him. Let's just sort of leave it there for now, okay? Um, but step back for a moment and ask yourself, why me? I mean, to what end, really? What, in, in other words, what is God's purpose in saving any of us? In particular, you. Well, I mean, God, he made us, right? And he, he loves us. He longs to be with us. And so, so of, course, of course, he saves us. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make light of that. Certainly those things are, are, are true, but it's got to be more than that, doesn't it? Because if, if that was all that it was, then why wouldn't we just sort of zap, go to heaven as soon as we believe, right? Why are we still here? Have, have you ever, what's that? He needs a witness, all right. Thank you, that's exactly right. I mean, have you thought about this, right? Have you, have you wrestled with this, this question I mean, why did, seriously, why did God pick you anyway, right? And I've been forced to think a lot about this lately, just on a, on a personal level. Um, I have this, this really old friend, and he and I are ridiculously similar. So many things in common. In fact, it kind of creeps Kelly out a little bit of, of how much we're alike. I mean, we don't, we don't look anything alike, but we... we same passions and hobbies and likes, dislikes, personality, moodiness. I mean, all of it. He and, I, he and I are very similar. And over these last several weeks, I've watched him make some really, really self-destructive choices. Um, 
And because he and I are so similar, I, I can't help but look at him and see myself. Does that make sense? I mean, it sort of feels a little bit like, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge looking at what could have been. That, that's what I feel like when I, when I see this, this friend of mine. And really the only major difference between myself and him is that I follow Jesus. And I know that that's not something that makes us invincible to making poor choices or anything like that. And yet at the end of the day, the only reason I can think that I haven't taken those same destructive choices is grace. Simply because I follow Jesus, which is pretty humbling, actually. Because I'd much rather believe that I'm just a better person, right? That I just have control of my junk kind of thing. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus. And so I have to ask myself, why? Why, why me? And as we, as we look at this, this story, how this man named Saul, who hated Christians, becomes Paul, who preaches Jesus across the entire known world, we get a little tiny clue as to why. When I read, when I read this incredible story, I just, I can't miss it. God didn't save you for you. Which I realize in our individualistic, somewhat self-absorbed frame of reference, for some of you that phrase might be completely offensive. What do you mean he didn't save me for me? For my hope, my life, my heaven, my afterlife. I don't want to minimize those things. But God didn't save you for you. He saved you for his church. For this new life together, just like the Apostle Paul. Now listen, we, we probably all have very different definitions of that word church, okay? I don't mean that God's highest purpose for you is to spend 75 minutes here every Sunday, right? Even I think that'd be lame, okay? That's not, that's not it. I mean, when I say church, I mean the redemptive community. I mean us together at work and engaged in our world, caring for one another, loving one another, caring for the, the marginalized, reaching out to those who are, who are less fortunate, sharing the gospel, spreading his kingdom throughout you and me at work and at home and at school and on the soccer field, everywhere. Us, together. That's... That's the church I'm talking about. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for his church. Okay, so we are telling the, the whole story this year right? Genesis to Revelation. We've, we've been through the Old Testament, through the life of Christ. Jesus has died. He's risen again. And it feels like that should be the end of the story. But as we've been saying, it's not. There's actually quite a bit left. Even of, even of the book, the, the Bible, right? And yet at the same time, where we're at, it kind of feels like maybe it's all just been a big mistake, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? Jesus is gone. And yes, last week we saw in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came and the church was off to this really great start. And yet now, once again, it seems like it's, it's over. The persecution has begun already for the early Christians, 
How in, in a moment, all of their rights could be taken away, their property stripped away, they could be imprisoned, beaten. In, in Acts chapter 7, for example, a man named Stephen is the very first of Jesus' followers to be murdered because of Jesus. He, he's preaching a sermon. The crowds don't like what he has to say. They pick up large stones and begin chucking it at him, stones that would eventually crush his skull and kill him. It's a tough crowd. In chapter 8, verse 1, for example, it says that Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Well, that's it, boys and girls. It's been fun, right? I mean, this Jesus thing, it's been great, but, uh, you know, it's, it's about that time, isn't it? You would think. Except it turns out that this is exactly what the early church needed. I mean, Jesus had told them that they would proclaim his message in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But so far, they've really just sort of hunkered down in Jerusalem, preaching it there. But now, when the persecution happens, everyone, all the disciples, right, all of his followers flee for their lives, and they end up in places like Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But they cannot stop talking about this Jesus. Even in the midst of all their faces, they just, somebody defeated death and now he offers us life and forgiveness. They cannot stop talking about him. And more and more are being saved. Thousands daily coming to know this Jesus. Jesus had gone viral and Saul hated it. Hated it. Saul was a Pharisee, right? So he was a religious leader, and he was a brilliant leader, a motivational leader. And and as a Pharisee, he was righteous. I mean, according to the Old Testament law, he kept every rule. He was about as good as they can possibly come. But if there was one thing Saul hated, it was Jesus. And if there were two things he hated, it was Jesus and Jesus' followers, right? He just couldn't understand how, how does this dead man's following keep growing, didn't have a category for that. And so he decides to expand his territory. He's already kind of worked to, to clean up the streets of Jerusalem, right? To rid that area of the Christian riffraff. And finally, he decides to head up north to Damascus. At the beginning of chapter 9, it says, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He heads up to Damascus to destroy the Christians there. But while on the road, he stopped by a blinding light. Out of the blue, and he, he falls down, terrified. And he hears a loud voice calling out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? 
And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus so identifies with his church, so identifies with his people, so identifies with us, that when his people are mistreated, Jesus feels it. And when we speak poorly of other Christians, when we speak poorly of his church, just keep in mind, Jesus takes it personally. That's what happens here in this story. So there, there's Saul, right? He's, he's blind in this voice. Jesus says to him to go off into the city, keep going the rest of the way to Damascus. Again, he's, he's blind and he, Jesus tells him, somebody's gonna come and tell you what to do next. So Saul does, right? And he waits, he, he waits for, for three days, blind and afraid. I mean, just think about that. He has been so convinced that he is serving God, right? With his zealous retribution against Christians. He thinks he's been in the right and all of a sudden he's met Jesus. And now he's waiting blind. Meanwhile, there's this Christian in Damascus who also has a vision. His name is Ananias. And Jesus tells Ananias, he says, why don't you go down to, to Straight Street? Love the specificity there, right? GPS-style directions, Jesus giving to this man, Ananias. Go, go to Straight Street, and you will find this man named Saul. Um... Wait a second, Jesus. Uh, you know, I've heard of him. Um, he's evil. And Jesus, I'm kind of surprised you didn't know this. Um, but he's here to imprison us, to, to beat us, to, to kill us as Christians. It's a little gutsy, right? And I'm not sure if I had a vision of Jesus. I'd be so bold as to argue with him. But At the same time, I can't really blame him, right? Jesus is asking Ananias to risk everything, to put everything of his life into Jesus' hands and go and find this murderer, this one who hated Christians. Jesus, his response is basically, you know, just don't worry about it, Ananias. It's okay. Yeah, right, okay. Jesus says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So of course he goes, terrified, I'm sure. But when Ananias sees Saul, he says to him, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me so that you may receive your sight back and so that you could receive the Holy Spirit and And immediately, it says, Saul could see again. And immediately, he said he wanted to go out and be baptized. And immediately, in verse 20, it says, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God, proving that Jesus was the Christ. And Saul, who then started going by the name Paul, 
kind of an interesting little switch there. It's really the same name. Saul is the Jewish version of Paul. Paul is the sort of the Latin or the Roman, the Gentile version of Saul. It's basically Paul, he, he so identified with the mission that Jesus had given him to be an apostle to the Gentiles that he took on that version of his own name. It's kind of that, that sort of self-identification with other people, this new mission. And Paul became undoubtedly the most influential Christian who has ever lived. I mean, he preached the name of Jesus across the entire known world. I mean, he planted churches everywhere he went. He raised up and trained leaders. He wrote a third of our New Testament. And the next four of our messages are going to be from Paul's words. The one who devoted his life to crushing Christians now spends the next 30 years building Christians. The one who'd murdered people for following Jesus, he himself will end up murdered for following Jesus. Just a side note here. I mean, it's just so interesting to me. Historically, nobody disputes that this actually happened. I mean, we may not agree on how, right? Whether or not there's actually some, some vision, but nobody disputes that there was a historical person named Saul who hated Christians desperately and who ends up becoming the most profound, influential Christian leader. Nobody disputes that, but why? Why did it happen? Why does God rescue Saul? Well, here's where we see it. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for his church, for this new life together. Man, I I think we see it very clearly in this story, right? Four, Four things. In Saul's life, and I think in ours, we've been rescued for change, rescued for everyone, everywhere, rescued for suffering, and rescued for work. Paul was rescued for change. You just can't miss this in this story. I mean, look at the power of God to change lives. God doesn't save us to stay where we are. He saves us to make us new. Redeemed sinners being transformed together. I mean, there's an old word that that sort of describes what's what's happening here. An old word, it's conversion, right? It's not, not one we use terribly often anymore, but it's a good word. Conversion is not interest in Jesus. Uh, Conversion isn't, you know, adding Jesus to the long list of things that are already really important in your life. Jesus, uh, conversion is a complete change, an absolute turnaround. I mean, sometimes I think we think of conversion as just sort of a little tweak, right? Like we're on this, this journey of life, you know, and the Bible teaches that by nature, all of us are headed towards self-destruction by choice and by nature, that's where we're going. And, and we think of, of Jesus or Christianity or the church or whatever you want to call it as just kind of a little tweak, right? Um, that it's kind of like, well, I'm going to do this thing now, right? I'm just going to kind of maybe just a little bit off to the side and all that. But that's still ultimately still headed in the same place, right? This, this word conversion, what we see here with Paul, I mean, it's a complete turnaround, right? It's an absolute 180. Everything is different. It's, it's a decision to make Jesus' way of life my way of life. A complete turnaround. And that's what we see with Saul, this total reversal. 
And, and, and think about this for a moment. I mean, on the one hand, Saul was perfectly religious, absolutely zealous for his faith. And he was as moral and as good as they come by those standards. And yet even he needed to be converted. Even he needed Jesus. It doesn't matter how good, how moral, how great your background might be, even he needed to be converted. And at the same time, right? I mean, he was a murderer, right? A, a violent, evil person in, in, that, in that sense. And yet, even him, Jesus wants on his team. Even he, who, who would refer to himself later as the chief of sinners, even he could be converted. But Jesus didn't rescue him for him. He rescued him to be changed. So ask yourself, I mean, if, if this is why Jesus saves, ask yourself, have I been converted? Not have I added Jesus to my lifestyle. Not, not have I added Jesus to my long list of things I kind of believe but make absolutely no difference in my life whatsoever. Not, not that. But have you moved from death to life? From, from going your way to, to going his way? I'm not, I'm not talking about perfection here. Paul, Paul wasn't perfect. That's, that's not what we see. But have you been changed? Are you being changed? I mean, what can you look at in your life and say, here I'm different because I know Jesus. Here he's, he's changed me. And if there is nothing that you can point to, I mean, have you met him? I mean, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're, you're unsure if you've truly encountered Jesus, if you've truly moved from death to life, then talk to me. Talk to someone here to, to help explain what that even means, what that looks like, how we begin that process. Or even in, in this moment, just pray. Lord Jesus, here's my life. Everything. I, I, I hate my sin. I, I realize it's not working. Forgive me. Change me. Make me new. Be changed. But that's not all we see here. I mean, this is the more obvious one in some ways. And I think oftentimes, again, in sort of our individualistic, sort of self-focused way of viewing, frankly, all of reality, right? This is all, this is all we tend to, to, to think, that, that Jesus saved me for me, for my personal change, my, my own growth. Me and Jesus, right? We can do our own thing and it's all going to be fine. And I, again, I don't want to make light of that. There's just so much more. Even the change is for the community. God doesn't save us for us. We've been rescued also for everyone, everywhere. And I love this in this story. I mean, it's so important. Do you, do, you, do you realize that if Jesus hadn't done this in this moment of history with this man named Saul, you and I wouldn't be Christians. Right? If, if this story hadn't happened, we would not know Jesus. Because Jesus makes it very clear why he rescues Paul, doesn't he? In verse 15, he says, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, which is most of us. 
And through Paul, Jesus opened the doors wide for you and for me. Would you have any idea how radical this was in that moment of history? I mean, Paul would write elsewhere, right, that that Jesus is for men, women, Jew, Gentile, old, young, educated, uneducated, for everyone, everywhere. And for us, I mean, we're just, we're used to that. We we expect that kind of thing. But for them, this this was shocking to think about. I mean, yes, they they were in the Roman Empire, but never before in the history of the world had there been an institution as inclusive as this one. Never. I mean, the Roman Empire, yes, was was the most pluralistic place, right? Because the Romans would, they would take over different parts of the country and they'd sort of mix everybody up. They'd, you know, displace them. And so all kinds of different people were forced to live together. And yet even there in that pluralistic world, they all kept to themselves, so the Romans, they were all with the Romans and the Persians were all with the, Rome, the Persians and the, the Jews were all with the Jews and they all worked together. They all spent time together. They lived life together. They only married people who were like them and they certainly only worshiped with people who were like them. I mean, check any, you know, historical record will show this. And now for the first time, everything changes in this moment. I mean, sometimes people talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, that through Jesus, only through him is the path to God. In that sense, it is exclusive. And yet at the same time, there has never been a path more inclusive ever of everyone, everywhere. Paul, through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, he preached this, he wrote about this, he formed churches, centered upon this, and for the first time, Ever in the history of the world, people from every background, every culture, every race began to worship together. Not just worship together, began doing life together. Began making their primary community, not with the people who were like them, which is what it had been for thousands of years, but people who are, yes, different from us. And yet together worship this same Jesus Think about that. Frankly, outside of Christianity today, I mean, this is really, for the most part, still the case. I mean, listen, for example, to this quote from the Pew Research Center. It says there are 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world, representing nearly a third of the estimated 2010 global population of 6.9 billion. Christians are also geographically widespread, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. Think about that for a second. I know there's a lot, a lot there, but in the center of Judaism, it's clearly Jerusalem, right? Israel. Uh, the center of Islam is Mecca, and, and even though Islam continues to spread, it's still primarily found in the Arab world, right? Appealing almost exclusively to Arabs or or the center of of Hinduism. It's India. That's where the entire focus is, or Buddhism. It it hasn't really left the the, the Near East there, the Far East. I mean, even even the center of secularism, right? The anti-religion religion. religion, The center is clearly the West, right? But the center of Christianity? There isn't one. I mean, for example, let's go to the, the Pew Center website here. I've got a little, 
Okay, so as you can see, 2.18 million Christians will click over here, Asia Pacific, for example. All these red dots are all representative of Christian populations. China, 67 million Christians. India, 31 million Christians. Let's go out to, uh, yeah, Africa there. Africa, 516 million Christians. Go to the Americas. Uh, Brazil, for example, 175 million Christians. Let's go to Europe. I mean, all those spots. Russia, for example, 105 million Christians. And, And on and on and on, right? There is no center. Christianity is the only stream of faith that is found in every culture for every kind of person throughout the entire world. That's amazing, isn't it? The church, and only the church, is this radically inclusive of everyone, everywhere. And why? It's because Paul and the early Christians knew God didn't save them for them. He saved them for everyone, everywhere. I mean, how else could you explain that you followed a Jesus from 2,000 years and 7,000 miles ago. And yet we still tend to be so convinced that our world, our lives, our faith is just really about us, right? I get so consumed about my, my own little world, my own little desires. But ask yourself, how is my heart towards others Really? Am I I more concerned about my needs, my desires, or the needs or desires of of my family, or even my immediate group, right? My tiny little world orbiting around me, or do I share the same passion that started a movement of Christ followers that has never been stronger? And I know I so easily answer that question. Sure, I love everyone everywhere, right? But how do we demonstrate that? I mean, truly, if you were to ask yourself, I mean, do I, do I live my life more consumed with myself or with others? And what about people who are different from you? That's the hardest, isn't it? Do you serve others? Pray for others. Care for others. Share the message of Jesus with others. Invite others to church. Support others who, who are in need. Live life together with others. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for everyone, everywhere. He saved you for his church. Well, we also see in this story that we've been rescued for suffering. Kind of prefer to skip that one. But listen, this is what the church is. The church is built for suffering. Christians are built for suffering. What else should we expect but suffering? I mean, Jesus himself suffered, and the the early church was built on the blood of the saints. I mean, think about it, right? It it was Saul's persecution of early Christians that got them out of Jerusalem, spreading rumors of resurrection throughout the entire known world. And Jesus even said about Saul specifically in verse 16, he said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And if you keep reading, even there in chapter 9, like days after all of this happens to Saul, and there are already plots to murder him. And Saul would suffer over and over again and eventually be murdered for what he did. 
And we here as Christians, I mean, we tend to freak out, don't we? Like, you know, about the cultural changes around us. And I don't, I don't, I'm not making light about any of those, but we talk as if it's the end of the church, don't we? You know, it's getting so hard to be a Christian in our culture. Are you kidding? The church was birthed in a world that literally lit Christians on fire, alive, to to light up their parties, to use them as torches. Emperor Nero did that. And they were fed to the lions, beheaded, raped, imprisoned, tortured, all for the sake of following this one Messiah. And yet the church flourished and grew and changed the world in that environment. And in other parts of the world today, I mean, we forget about this, don't we? We have brothers and sisters across the world today who can't even hardly imagine the fact that we get to come in here publicly, we can sing as loud as we want, we can gather and proclaim and love this Jesus together. There are 200 million Christians in our world today who can't do that. 200 million. And it's been estimated that over the last 2,000 years, 43 million Christians have been murdered for following Jesus. Just one example of that. As a church, we've been praying for a man named Farshid. Um, he's one of our, one of our ministry partners um, serving with Elam. He's a pastor in Iran, and he's in the middle of a six-year prison sentence in Iran for being a pastor. Um, one of the most notorious prisons in Iran. He spent over a year in solitary confinement. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a letter of his surfaced out of, out of prison. He's only, I think, had two um, since, since he was incarcerated. But let me read part of it for you. Again, this was just written a couple weeks ago from Farshid. He says, How can I complain about my suffering when my brothers and sisters are paying a high price for their faith all over the world? He says, I recently heard about many people killed in front of a church in Pakistan. I also heard a young sister in Christ sharing about how she lost her family for the sake of the gospel, and still she is willing to return to share the good news. How can I complain about my suffering when our dear brother Haik gave his life and was killed with more than 20 knife stabs to preach to sinners like me? Or what, and what about our dear brother Dibaj, who spent nine years and 27 days in prison and was finally martyred after that much suffering? How can I complain about my suffering when I think of our lovely brother Sudmond, who had four precious children and was martyred, and dear brother Mikhailian and Ravankbakash, whose blood is still crying out from the land of Iran to heaven? And then he says, and finally, what about the Apostle Paul? who was many times in prison, suffered countless beatings, was stoned and often near death, but served the Lord with all of his heart. But after all of this, Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when I look at all these heroes of faith, he writes, how can I complain about my suffering? Man, I'm such a whiner. And to find out more about Farshid, you can visit his, his website there. I encourage you to pray for him, his wife, his two small kids. Um, we have little prayer cards at each door if you want to just grab one on your way out just to remind you to pray uh, for this partner uh, of ours, this brother of ours. And meanwhile, 
the church in Iran and in these other places continues to grow at an unprecedented rate, like never before. Man, we are a bunch of whiners, aren't we? Maybe what we need is a little opposition. Maybe we need a little more suffering. Maybe a little persecution. Or at least a little risk-taking once in a while. I mean, it's pretty unlikely that you and I are going to suffer like that, right? For which I'm thankful. But we can take risks, can't we? I mean, think about the risks that Ananias took in going to, to Saul. Or think about the risks the early church took in receiving Saul, right? And saying, yes, you're, you're now one of us. Think about that risk. And we're afraid of the risk of telling our classmates about him, about Jesus. And we're afraid of the risk of, of opening up, right, to the people around us, letting them into our lives to actually do life together. We're, we're, we're afraid of that risk. Maybe, maybe you're afraid of just doing something brave for the sake of Jesus. Maybe serving in a place outside your comfort zone. Ask yourself, what risk am I willing to take? What risk? Maybe it's something with your kids, or your work. Maybe it's just the, the risk of, of being generous, right? Of, of trusting God to take care of you. Maybe it's the risk of investing in one of our, our kids, one of our, our students here. Life is full of risk. But comfort is not the goal of the Christian life. Ease is not the norm for those who have followed Jesus throughout history. Suffering is the norm. We were rescued for suffering. Which leads us to the last one. And all these are tightly woven together, right? Very much overlapping. But the last one here that we see is we've been rescued for work, for purpose. Not for you, not for my enjoyment or my leisure or even for my afterlife. But to expend our lives for the sake of his kingdom. God God saved Paul, it said, right, to be his chosen instrument, to bring his message, to to work his redemption, to care for his people, and the same is true for us. The church is not a social club. Jesus is not a hobby. He has given us a job to do, a mission, a purpose, to be about his work in all of life, to spread the message that he is the one who who has died for our sins, who has risen for our life, giving us hope, So ask yourself, what am I doing? What job am I doing? Am I more concerned about my own mission for life, for my family, for my situation, more concerned about my own little details and activities than his mission? In your work, home, school, neighborhood, church, how can you partner more fully with him for the sake of his kingdom? I mean, seriously, why did God save you, right? I think he raises standards by this point. Yeah, that's it's grace. And he has rescued us for the same reason he rescued Saul. And yes, it's going to look differently for each one of us. 
but you and I have been rescued for change, rescued for everyone, everywhere, rescued for risk and for suffering, rescued to be about his work in all of life. God saved you for his church. I mean, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the local church is the hope of the world. And that means you. Let's pray. God, help us be your church, your people. Help us to be so captivated by by the truth of your love, your, your acceptance of us. God, your incredible grace to save even someone like Saul, even someone like me. To be so captivated that we cannot help but expend our lives for a mission greater than myself. Give us that passion. God, by your Holy Spirit, empower us, invigorate us, and God, allow us to see the fruit of what you are doing through us and through our families and through our church. And God, I do pray for those who who often take their faith so much more seriously than I do. God, I do pray for Farshid and his family and the millions who are like him. I pray that we wouldn't forget in the midst of our comfort. And I pray that you'd give them strength and faith in the midst of their suffering. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have rescued us. God, I'm so thankful that you have saved me, not just from death and sin, but even from my own narcissistic ways. Thank you for calling us to be a part of your mission, your family together. And so we worship you now. We proclaim your goodness to all the nations. Amen.